Thank you for listening, and welcome to the Titans of History series. Episode 21, First Consul, Napoleon Bonaparte. Well, folks, here we are, nearly six months into our journey on Napoleon Bonaparte, and we have finally arrived at our first episode in which he was finally in power. Now, I think when I first started this podcast, I would have laughed off the idea of taking this long to reach the day when Napoleon became head of the consulate, but 20 episodes and six months later, here we are. There is just one problem. Napoleon isn't technically the head of the consulate yet. Fresh off of the Brumaire coup, there was still much debate as to how the new government would work. Indeed, as we left off last week, many people were still unsure exactly, well, what would come next. The consulate could reign for a millennia, or it might not last until the next major battle against the coalition. There really was no way of knowing, and quite frankly, it made perfect sense for everyone in France to feel apprehensive as 18 and 19 Brumaire turned into 20 Brumaire. They just had witnessed nearly a full decade of revolution, coup, counter-coup, wars. To think the consulate would be any different was, well, ironically, the most radical mentality of all. But as it turned out, for every bit of a disaster that was the French directory, the French consulate turned out to be, well, not so bad. In fact, as we'll talk about today, it was indeed the consulate that laid the groundwork for what would become Napoleon's empire, as well as leave France and the world with one of the most important and influential law books ever written. I'm talking, of course, about the Napoleonic Code, and we will get to that in due time. But for now, let's dive in and set the stage for the end of the beginning and the beginning of the end. After the Brumaire coup, The first order of business was to write and implement a new constitution, as the constitution of year three was now all but a crumpled piece of paper floating down the Seine on our way to the English Channel. Now, Siez had already written two of the previous three French constitutions, and Napoleon was skeptical about his attempts to implement a third. Siez had numerous drafts already pre-written, some of them on hand, and he was keen on keeping substantial checks and balances on centralized power something which Napoleon would not tolerate again, as he believed that was a huge reason for much of the chaos of the previous decade. And after a decade of checks and balances, Napoleon knew that some good old-fashioned centralization was exactly what France was lacking. Now, he positioned his opposition as a safeguard to the revolution, but it was becoming pretty clear to everyone else that Napoleon's idea of the French Revolution was beginning to sway in a completely different direction. Plus, as we've already noted, Napoleon was just not a fan of Sieg's to begin with. He was always skeptical of his intentions, seeing him as nothing more than a philosopher masquerading as a politician in priest's clothing, and was of the belief that he was incapable of running a government in such chaotic times. Quote, He was not a man of action, Napoleon wrote of Sieg's. Knowing little of men's natures, he did not know how to make them act. His studies have always led him down the path of metaphysics. 
In 2023 terms, Napoleon basically thought of Sieyès as nothing more than an aging nerd sitting in the way of the true master of France, Napoleon. So, back to the library, this man needs to go. Immediately after the coup brumaire, the men who had successfully overthrown the Directory met in the very chambers where the Director sat at the Luxembourg Palace on Monday, November 11th, that's 20 Brumaire in our revolutionary calendar, 1799. Now, it was a cold, rainy, and dark morning, but it would be a morning in which a new day would dawn over France. Now, initially, the coup would seem to be a giant victory for the man who drew up and masterminded it all, the Abbeciers. But Napoleon, only the day prior having successfully completed the coup, now planned to take the final step in securing his firm grip on power by moving Sieyès into a subordinate role in the new government. And while on the surface, it would make sense that Napoleon could have done this through force, Napoleon was far shrewder than many of his older contemporaries gave him credit for. He wanted the job as the ever-important first consul, yes, but he knew doing so violently would have quickly turned public opinion against him. And boy oh boy did Napoleon love an adorning crowd. So he got to work on his public relations, see propaganda, to help him gain the top seat in a more uh, democratic fashion. At their first meeting, former director and soon-to-be provisional consul Roger Ducot said to the group that Napoleon was to be president. There really was no need to even initiate a vote, a notion of which CA scoffed at. You all do remember who planned this entire thing, right? I'd imagine him thinking. But Napoleon then offered a sarcastic compromise in which the head of the government would rotate every 24 hours, starting alphabetically by surname. And guess whose surname came first? What followed were weeks of deliberations about how to arrange a new government and constitution before it would be put on a ballot to the masses. And this is where Napoleon's mastery of propaganda came into brutal effect. So check this out. The same night after the Brumaire coup, Napoleon had his men print sensationalized posters of how he took down a bunch of leftist and royalist assassins who threw themselves at his chest, intending to assassinate him. He then conveniently called for, quote-unquote, national unity in these same posters, making himself out to be some savior of France from a dangerous minority from within. But it worked, if for no other reason than he was the only one to really do it enthusiastically. See, as for all of his passion as a writer did little to broadcast his role in the coup. In fact, to the contrary, he had hid his intentions for so long, it was difficult for the average French citizen, 10 years removed from what is the third estate, to likely pick him out of a crowd. But everyone knew Napoleon. He was the man who ended the war. He was the man who had come home to save France. And now, he was the man who had come to lead France. It was all just too much for any man no matter how ambitious, to topple that kind of pent-up momentum. But still, Sieyès tried his best by being the author of the proposed constitution. Now, while he did have a foray of drafts written, many of them were scattered over hundreds of sheets of paper, and none of them were well-organized. So when Sieyès sat down with, wait for it, Antoine Jacques-Claude Joseph, Comte Boulet de la Mer one of the 50 members of the Council of 500 who stayed behind to, quote, vote to suspend the directory in the Constitution in year three, to pen a final version of the new Constitution, the Comte de Boulay was astounded at how convoluted it would be, especially for a man who fancied himself an opponent of the Constitution in year three for similar reasons. Hypocrisy really is a thing, people. 
But then involved Pierre Danot to assist, who was also an ex-Girondin, and had been a constitutional consultant on previous editions. Now, the nuts and bolts of the final draft are, as I mentioned, convoluted, but in general, it would consist of a, quote, grand elector with the help of two other consuls, one foreign and the other domestic. Only notables in a proposed Senate would be able to dismiss the grand elector, which was just a fancy name for an autocratic dictator whose Senate was just a rubber-stamping body. Now, you can probably guess as to who believed they were best suited for the grand elector. And, of course, the answer, yes, it is both C.A.'s and Napoleon. As for Ducot, well, let's just say that he is every bit the Marcus Lepidus to C.A.'s and Napoleon's Mark Antony and Octavian, respectively. I am hoping we all get that reference, but if you don't, we'll see shortly that Ducot was gradually phased out of the consulate, left only to lead the soon-to-be-founded Senate. But over the next few weeks, it became apparent to even the most ardent of CAs as supporters that his constitutional proposal had several weaknesses, most notably the lack of a strong executive. Napoleon's camp hated the idea of a grand elector being able to be, quote, dismissed just as much as he hated the fact that he was likely to be the foreign consul. And so they were able to convince Danneux and soon-to-be second consul Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès, the future Duke of Parma under Napoleon's empire, by the way, to join their side. Now, both of these defections from Cieza's camp were critical in convincing the Provisional Committee that all major executive power to be vested to Napoleon for 10 years as first consul without the need for some elaborate grand elector. Instead, the first consul would be advised by a council of state that would have sole authority to propose legislation. In addition, the first consul would be able to promulgate laws, name and dismiss members of the Council of State, ambassadors, ministers, and other chief foreign agents at his leisure, had treaty-making powers, would reside in the Tuileries, and would make 500,000 francs per annum. Now, the second and third consuls, by comparison, would make only 150,000. So, before the soon-to-be-ratified Constitution of Year 8 was voted on, it lay bare quite clearly who would be in charge. With Sieyes really out of options, he had no other choice but to acquiesce to the changes. And just like that, Napoleon's coup within the coup was complete. It shed no blood, and yet it disposed of hundreds of useless bodies. Now, as far as the other aspects of government, the bodies went as follows. There was the Council of State, and as mentioned, was able to draft bills, though again, all of its members were selected by the first consul, so in reality, they were nothing more than a bureaucratic rubber stamp. Next was the Tribunate, which was unable to draft bills, but rather debate those brought before their chamber. The Corps Legislatif, or literally legislative body, which was able to vote on the bills by only reading the debate records from the Tribunate, if that isn't confusing enough. And then finally, there was the Senate Conservatoire, literally Conservative Senate, which verified the drafted and passed bills while advising the First Consul on how to implement them. And then there were the Consuls themselves, in positions of power for 10-year terms, though only one would ultimately last the duration of that decade, though in a slightly different position. And, spoiler alert, I think we all know who that is. By mid-December, all the details were finalized. Napoleon would be first consul, Cambasarez the second consul, and Charles-François Lebrun as the third. Now, Sieyes, seeing the writing on the wall in big, bold letters, nominated Napoleon for the position. In exchange, he received the mostly ceremonial role as president of the Senate, while Ducot, who was handsomely paid off, was given the title of vice president. Roger Ducot, to me, will always be the modern-day Marcus Lepidus. 
there just is no escaping it. And after securing his role as first consul, Napoleon turned the consulate into a propaganda machine almost immediately, knowing that having the public be on his side was imperative to achieving success both domestically and internationally. They framed their rise to power as the completion of the French Revolution, and they worked to heal old festering wounds. They established hospitals at Versailles for wounded veterans, repealed anti-emigre laws aimed at bringing back critical capital assets to France, they made Bastille Day and the Vendemer coup national public holidays, and critically, they repealed the oath requirement for non-juring priests. Napoleon knew that the reason the previous two governments had failed was because they were either too radical or too passive, and he hoped to play on the feelings and beliefs of all in order to achieve a sense of national unity in times of great peril. But above all, Napoleon saw himself as the true deserving leader of his countrymen. As he later wrote in reference to Julius Caesar, quote, In such a state of affairs, these deliberate assemblies could no longer govern. The person of Caesar was therefore the guarantee of the supremacy of Rome in the universe and of the security of the citizens of all parties. His authority was therefore legitimate, and in Napoleon's view, so was his own. The consulate declared the creation of the new constitution on December 15th, which was to go into effect on Christmas Day, 1799. Now, this constitution, the Constitution of Year 8, was the first in 1789 to not include a Bill of Rights, something which Napoleon was very conscious of. He wanted this document to stress the importance of property rights and liberty, believing both having been violated during the previous decade of revolution. He tailored the document with small businesses in mind, knowing that it was they, not the crypto aristocracy, that were the backbone of France's economy, and he was smart to promulgate their needs above all else. He believed that economic freedom was the basis for personal freedom, and as someone from a family of the lower middle class, this viewpoint made sense. He also strengthened the army, increasing soldiers' wages and guaranteeing pensions for veterans, and he stated that any land taken from emigres was not to be returned to those coming back to France. But in a bit of compromise, they would be able to repurchase said land at full value should they so choose. It also gave a sense of calm to the average French citizen, as soldiers could no longer enter private homes without notice. Petitioners would always get a hearing, and unreasonable search and seizures were prohibited, even if it was not explicitly stated in the Constitution itself. Now, many of these initial policies would be the foundation for what would become the Civil Code of the French, better known today as the Napoleonic Code. Now, the Code is still in force today, though it has been amended countless times. And we'll get into the major details of the code in a couple of episodes because it was actually one of the last major enhancements by the consulate before the creation of the empire. But suffice it to say, having a standard legal and civil code that all Frenchmen could abide by was of paramount interest to Napoleon, a man who hated lawlessness above pretty much everything else. What's curious, too, is that even though Napoleon was an absolute dictator in all but name, he did allow for debate, especially amongst his mostly citizen council of state. Of the 50 members, only six were soldiers. As long as the men were respectful, they were allowed to disagree with proposals and laws put forth, vehemently if necessary. And it's here that we begin to see the enlightened despotism that is so often associated with Napoleon. He was in complete control, yes, but he understood the total rule in smashing out any type of opposition was actually detrimental to his overall goal. Better to let the boys play than keep them pent up inside all day, essentially. They do need to get that energy out every once in a while. The Council of State is one of Napoleon's many legacies still left intact. 
They're a fully functioning body of the French government to this day and have been for 224 years at the time of this recording, acting both as a legal advisor to the executive branch and as the Supreme Court for Administrative Justice. Now, keeping on the theme of enlightened despotism, or the thought of a benevolent dictator, the consulate was also shrewd to not throw away the idea of democracy completely. Voters would be able to elect the members of the legislative body, that is the corps législatif, though the final selection of the deputies would be confirmed by the Senate. Now, the voting process was certainly not as liberal as it was in 1793. It was indeed curtailed significantly. But the guise of democracy was such that it did not arouse the general suspicion that an absolute monarchy was in its nascent stages. Though, in fact, that's exactly what was happening. Now, the voting process worked as follows, and it is complicated, so try to stay with me here. All adult male voters in a community would choose 10% of their number as notabilities of the commune, who would then choose 10% of that number as the notabilities of the department, who would then choose five or 600 notabilities of the nation. The Senate would then filter through the notabilities of the nation, and it would be from here that they got the members of the tribune and legislative body. Many members of all of the bodies had served in national assemblies before, and their experience proved invaluable to Napoleon, who would use these connections to further solidify his power in the coming years. But in summary, the sheer complexity of the electoral system made it such that while the process was democratic, at least in face value, it most certainly turned off only the most politically savvy of voters in subsequent elections. And that's exactly what Napoleon was banking on because it allowed him to consolidate power while also quelling resistance at home, which allowed him to focus on the many international quandaries which the French still faced. Now, shortly after the consulate formed, Napoleon reached out to both Britain and Austria about a peace to end the War of the Second Coalition. With Russia having already bowed out following their defeats in Switzerland a few months prior, and with the British invasion of the Netherlands having been unsuccessful, Napoleon sent overtures to see if they would be ready to negotiate a settlement to end hostilities before the spring rains. When the British sent back a reply telling Napoleon to put the Bourbons back on the throne, he responded in kind by asking them to do the same with the Stuarts. King George III was of German extraction from the House of Hanover, which he then published all over France to the delight of its citizens. It helped gain the consulate further credibility with the public, as they were not going to cave in to the British demands, and they were, indeed, going to represent a united France. And they would need it, because by the spring, the hostilities were going to pick back up again as the Austrians were looking to move west, across Italy, and into France. But that is a story for the next episode. In the meantime, knowing that external threats were looming, Napoleon continued with his domestic campaign to keep all the various political factions within France united under a single cause. As Napoleon later put it, quote, The simple title of French citizen is worth far more than that of royalist, Chouan, Jacobin, Felon, or any of these thousand and one denominations which have sprung during these past ten years from the spirit of faction, and which are hurling the nation into an abyss from which the time has at least come to rescue it, once and for all. Indeed, as British historian Andrew Roberts explains, it was the first since the start of the revolution that the ruling party did not purge her predecessors. And while it is true that Napoleon made sure that many extremists were not seated in the legislature, he did not have them beheaded simply because their views were a little off the beaten path. That, in and of itself, was the most revolutionary of all in the dying days of the 18th century. 
Which conveniently brings us back to the Constitution of Beer 8, the document that truly united all of France. Napoleon, again trying to keep the guise of democracy going, wanted to put the document out to the voters to confirm its legitimacy. So even though it was in force, it was sent to all male-eligible voters for three days in early February 1800. Now to make sure the vote was, uh, valid, Napoleon conveniently placed Lucien in the position of interior minister, that is, the man who validated election results, in December of 1799. Now, shockingly, the plebiscite came back in Napoleon's favor with the extremely close vote of 3,011,700 to 1,562. Yes, you read that correctly. 99.5% of the voters voted yes on the Constitution of Beer 8 a totally valid election which was not at all staged in any way, shape, or form. Please do stop me if my sarcasm is just a little too much. And look, while the results of the election were obviously rigged, many of the surviving records show physical tampering and writing by Lucian himself as well as other local officials, and while there is evidence presented that Napoleon's descent into absolutism started with the Constitution of Year 8, it's not like all the previous year's elections were all that different. Sure, their totals were not nearly the 100% that Napoleon almost scored, but voter intimidation, purging, and reluctance played a huge role in many of the radical constitutions of the previous 10 years being passed. So, yes, this election was indeed staged as well as manipulated, but it wasn't some novel invention. And, as we've mentioned a few times now, the French just wanted some stability in their lives. If they had to deal with a few Bonaparte's rating elections to ensure that, well, I guess we'll just look away, won't we? And that brings us to a major domestic policy issue for Napoleon. Banditry. One of the most popular aspects of the early consulate was their intolerance of the acts of robbery and kidnapping in the outward provinces, acts which had been commonplace during the tumultuous 1790s. Napoleon made sure that any brigand, especially those who had prior convictions, were dealt with quickly and severely, something which he hoped would further dissuade. Likewise, he reorganized the gendarmerie, or the military police, into a 16,500-man pay and benefits, something which the unit had lacked since its founding two years earlier. The police were provided horses and cleaner barracks to better increase their efficiency, and corruption was stamped out to make sure that all were equal before the law. When Napoleon took power in the Brumaire coup of 1799, Nearly 40% of France had been under martial law, but within a year of his ascension to emperor, it was considered safe to tra and trade between pre-revolutionary levels. This assurance of personal safety and property respect gained Napoleon almost as much popularity as his earlier campaigns had, and with far more personal impact to its citizens. And speaking of the departments, Napoleon went further to consolidate his rule by placing them all under the control of the Ministry of the Interior, in which appointed ministers would be sent out to each department to help minister them. Now, these officials were, as you would expect, handpicked by the consulate, see Napoleon, and thus were used as regional puppets to help keep them under centralized control from Paris. Now, they were still allowed to elect their local officials, but as you would imagine, these officials were primarily in advisory roles and had little function in the workings of actual governance. Again, it was a perfect ploy by Napoleon to keep just a little democracy to consolidate a whole lot of power. Now, Napoleon was smart about how he went about doing this because the administrators that the consulate sent to the departments were trained, paid well, 
promoted on merit rather than title, and they were removed if there were any rumblings of possible corruption. Now, this instilled a sense of fealty to the consulate, and they were so loyal, in fact, that Napoleon would later quip that these administrators were his mini-emperors. They were responsible for making sure that the taxes were paid on time, conscription quotas were met, and that law and order was preserved. As I mentioned, some minor administration was left to the local officials, such as with education and welfare, but for the most part, these men were pure extensions of the state. This system of the departments, which the consulate would later add on with an additional 20, is still the system France uses today for regional administration. And in 1800, they helped Napoleon greatly in uniting France under his complete hegemony. Napoleon also went further to try and help heal the wounds left open by the revolution. He had, after all, declared the revolution over, and he strived to make sure that any more of its remnants, save for their values, were removed. He renamed the Place de la Révolution the Place de la Concorde, the name which it still has today. He replaced the red bonnets that had been forcibly placed on churches and religious institutions. He brought back the proper Monsieur and Madame instead of the revolutionary Citoyen and Citoyenne. He would bring back religious holidays and, during his empire, would finally abolish the revolutionary calendar for good, bringing back the Gregorian one. Culturally, it had been a literal revolution. Napoleon went further by extending the same amnesty he had bestowed upon the emigres to exiled priests, with their voting rights even being restored after a predetermined stay back in France. But critically, he offered amnesty to the rebels in the Vendée and the Chouan provinces, emphatically telling them that they had been wronged by the previous regimes and that if they lay down their arms, they would be given total amnesty. Many did, and those that fought on, well, Napoleon was a dictator after all, a little bit of iron fisting never hurt when it was deemed necessary. By the reign of his empire, the Vendée was completely pacified. And as was natural for all dictators from all walks of life, Napoleon began his campaign on the freedom of the press. In January of 1800, he ordered the closing of 60 of France's 73 newspapers, ostensibly on the guide as units for counter-revolution, but in reality, many had writers who were critical of the young ruler. He ordered that only 13 be allowed in circulation during the war, with the exception of those devoted to science, literature, commerce, and business. In Napoleon's mind, it would have been impossible to unite the nation had Jacobin and crypto-royalist newspapers stayed in circulation. And while there is likely some truth to that, in reality, Napoleon had seen the chaos the last 10 years brought, and he believed freedom of the press was a big reason for that. Quote, Controlled by the government, a free press may become a strong ally, but left to its own device is to sleep beside a powder keg. The printing press is an arsenal. It cannot be private property. Still, outside of the United States and Britain, freedom of the press was typically the exception rather than the rule. And even in both of those countries, there were judicial, as well as extrajudicial, manners of handling matters of libel in ways that could be construed as sedition. But perhaps the biggest impact that Napoleon's early reign as first consul brought was financial stability. You see, Napoleon knew that once the spring came, fighting would resume with the Second Coalition, and he needed to start preparing his men with arms and supplies. But, as with any war, in order to fund his future campaigns, he needed money. The French treasury was left nearly empty thanks to years of mismanagement and corruption by the Directory. He instructed Minister of Finance Martin-Michel Charles Gaudon to produce around 12 million francs from France's richest bankers. When they were only able to secure a total of 3 million francs, Napoleon ordered the arrest of Gabriel Oval, 
the most powerful banker in France, who also happened to own numerous lucrative naval contracts. Ovad, who coincidentally had refused to help fund the Brumaire coup, decided it was then a good time to open the checkbook, and many of his fellow bankers followed suit. But Napoleon knew that it would not be prudent or popular to continue seeking out the richest men in France to procure loans for his military conquests, as well as arresting them. And even in 1800, Napoleon was resigned to the fact that he would be on campaign shortly. So, on February 13, 1800, less than three months since he overthrew the directory, Napoleon helped open the Banque de France, which is still, to this day, the main financial institution of France. Now, Napoleon, to help assist with public confidence in the institution, became its first shareholder and consulted with some of the finest bankers in France and Switzerland for guidance on running it. To further help initial investment in the bank, Napoleon told customers that it had the full backing of the consulate and even had the majority of his closest advisors and family members invest in a thousand shares so that the public would be more comfortable in doing so as well. If the Bonapartes were in, why aren't we? And while it obviously wasn't that simple, the Banque de France did seem to alleviate France's financial problems basically overnight. By the time of the empire, the bank would become an integral part of the government as well as the main financer to Napoleon's wars, as well as numerous wars long after Napoleon's death. But critically, it actually would be running a budget surplus. And make no mistake, war was looming. The day after Napoleon and Josephine moved into the Tuileries, in the same rooms that housed King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, please do add insult to injury, King Louis's younger brother, the Comte de Provence and future King Louis XVIII, wrote to Napoleon congratulating him on his ascension to power, assured that, in doing so, he would gladly welcome back the Bourbons and the new king could take his rightful place on the throne. But Napoleon had no such intentions. Offered any post in King Louis XVIII's uh, realm, Napoleon rebuffed the offer and warned the king not to return to France. Quote, You must not wish for your return to France. You would have to march over a 100,000 corpses to do so. Sacrifice your interest to the peace and happiness of France. History will recognize it. I am not insensitive to the misfortunes of your family. I will gladly contribute to the sweetness and tranquility of your retirement. I personally like to imagine he wrote this reply sitting at the very desk that King Louis XVI sat at, telling his younger brother to shove it where the sun doesn't shine. But regardless, with the stroke of a pen, any hope of achieving peace with the former royal family and her allies was reduced to nil. When Josephine was informed of the letter, she quipped to her husband that if he had acquiesced to the future king's request, her royalist friends would have erected a statue in honor of him. Napoleon retorted, quote, Yes, and my body will be under the pedestal. But as we know, there was no royal reconciliation with the Bourbons. France remained, and would remain, at war with the coalition allies. And to be frank, that's just what Napoleon needed. Because while he was indeed popular with the people, the first few months of the consulate were still tenuous. People were weary of yet another return to the dark days of a revolution in the directory. And all because we know how successful the consulate would end up being doesn't mean they did, especially in March of 1800, less than five months after its founding. So the consulate needed something that would refocus the country's energy and galvanize it behind their new young ruler. And, wouldn't you know it, just as the spring of 1800 came around, the Austrians decided to get greedy 
and continued their push west through northern Italy into Genoa. So First Consul Napoleon was able to go back to being what he did best, being General Napoleon. And next week, we'll dive into the campaign that helped validate Napoleon's grip on power. So join us as we venture back to the Alps and accompany Napoleon on his legendary Second Italian Campaign, culminating in the famed Battle of Maregno. <laughs>